Yes, somebody actually clicked on my Leviticus episode. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. This is episode one of I don't know how many on Leviticus. We're going to be covering the first three chapters and finding some really cool stuff. You will learn something cool or your money back. I know I learned a lot studying these first three chapters, so lots of exciting stuff to share. All right, I want to kick it off by talking about why studying Leviticus is important to begin with. First, it's all about sacrifice. And if you got nothing from Christianity, you should have caught that Christ is our new sacrifice and that he fulfills the law. So he's fulfilling, in large part, the Levitical law, and we're going to find out how. It's not only in his death on the cross, but also in his Eucharistic sacrifice. We're going to be learning a lot about that, and you're going to see some cool parallels. Even kind of a weird, nuanced, in-the-weeds way of arguing for transubstantiation. That's coming up. But first, I want to talk about the setting of Leviticus in salvation history. Here's my extraordinarily fast and slightly shabby rundown of the Old Testament. Genesis. It's just, this is how the whole shebang got started. Exodus. Guess what, guys? God is making a people. And step one is to bring them out of slavery. Why? Well, to worship. Leviticus. Okay, so the people are free, and uh, now they're going to worship. Numbers. All right, this is not going very well. They're going to need some penitential time. 40 years in the wilderness should do the trick. Deuteronomy. All right, we're through that. You're about to go into the promised land. This is Act 2. Here's the law again for the next generation because the first generation's all dead. Joshua. New promised land, new leadership. Judges. Oh, this isn't going well. You wouldn't believe the stuff that's been going on. This is the juiciest gossip in all of scripture. Um, <laughs> unbelievably bad stories going on in Judges. So bad they got recorded in the Bible. Just another reminder that the Bible is not Aesop's fables. It is not just a list of sweet little characters doing um, wonderful virtuous acts. It's mostly a don't do this book. Um, there's only precious few characters that we can learn from in a positive way. All of them are very real, very flawed, and... Um, yeah, it's a what not to do. And nothing is more like that than the book of Judges. And we're going to be um, referencing a hideous story from that. Then we have the book of Ruth. And this seems like a random digression about some random lady. Then we get Samuel, First uh, and Second Samuel, which is all about David and the kingdom. This doesn't perfectly, but does a darn good job of mapping on to the new covenant. So Genesis is, uh, we, we get a restart of the creation with uh, the book of John. If you read the beginning of the book of John, we learn that uh, the logos has come. There's this new creative action, which is beginning. So after that, we get the Exodus. What's the Exodus in the New Testament? Well, um, Jesus talks about it with Moses, nonetheless, on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Exodus is his crucifixion. That's what frees us from slavery. Then we have the resurrection and the establishment of the church, right? We're in the Levitical age, the equivalent of Leviticus. Numbers will be like um, the final test at the end of time or uh, purgatory for most of us going to heaven who don't become saints here on earth. Uh, and then we get stuff with the Messianic age. The book of Ruth is kind of like that section in Revelation describing the coming time where we have uh, um, Mary appearing in Revelation 12. And then right after that is the definitive establishment of the kingdom and the destruction of the false prophet and the beast, which mirror first and second Samuel. And then we get the Messianic kingdom. All right. We're basically in Leviticus. So there is really no other book of the Old Testament that more directly relates to our present age, our present salvation age, than Leviticus. So there's a lot we can learn here. So that's my pitch for why we should be studying it. And hey, you clicked on this episode, so good on you. All right, um, let's start. I suppose we should start from the very first verse, and we'll be giving a little bit of reflection along the way. 
All right, buckle in. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. Few things here. You're probably listening to this in the season of Lent. That's what I'm recording anyway. We're, we're told something at the very beginning that we're to bring from our flocks and our herds and that we're supposed to bring it to the tent of meeting. I think we can learn two things. One, so often in our lives, we expect God to come and meet us where we're at, that when we pray, God will show up, that when we want, God will deliver, that God should be on our terms. But that's not how the holy life, that's not how Leviticus begins. It says instead that He spoke to him from the tent of meaning. God is stationary, immovable, and eternal. We come to him. We shouldn't expect him to just come at our bidding. Quite the reverse. We need to treat God as God. And that's what all of this is about. Sacrifice is about putting God in the highest place. And it begins with understanding that our goal is to come to him. Yes, first drawn by grace. But he is not just a God that, he's not a genie. He's our king. So that's the first point I want to point out. Second one is, there's really no law at all that um, we haven't broken at some point (laughs) as a covenant people, Old or New Testament. And if you recall, um, this part was was violated. We're we're supposed to bring of our own flocks and herds. Um, But in the cleansing of the temple, that's what was not happening. So that's when people uh, decided that there was a more convenient way to offer the sacrifice. And that was to just walk by oneself without their sacrificial animal to Jerusalem and just purchase it there. Is that convenient? Yes, it is. But oftentimes, convenience can be the enemy of penance. So The point of the sacrifice is that we're supposed to not just have one unique event whereby we offer an animal, but that the sacrifice influences our life. And that, more properly speaking, our life leads up to sacrifice. That what we do throughout that year, right, this is a uh, one-year-old lamb or goat or or whatever, um, that for that entire year we were raising it. And then on one day, we bring it as an offering that sanctifies all of that time of work and toil. Our sacrifice is meant to be drawn out of our life, out of our work, out of who we are, out of our daily experience, out of the things which we have been cultivating. So here in the season of Lent, think of the things that you've been cultivating, that you have been growing. How has that prepared you to offer a sacrifice drawing out of your life? All right. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. Why? Well, obviously, this pictures Christ, because he is the Son of God, who is without defect. If I was to offer another, um, another reason why it's a male without defect is because the male is the principle of generation. So this is an act of faith. It's an act of trust that we give over that which is generative, that which is the, uh, the, the initiative of life, the, the initiating life, and say that this properly belongs to God who initiated all life, who generated all things. So we give that over to God. Picking up on verse oh, 4. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. What's going on here? Well, God has no need of sacrifice. He has no need of us offering anything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What he wants is an internal transformation of our hearts. Sacrifice is meant to undo our sin, to clear our sin. And we'll be going through a number of ways why this does exactly that. 
But the beginning of all sin is pride. And the way that you can fight any sin is the inverse, humility. I think this is a a very humble act, that when you come to make yourself right with God, you have to realize that you, in your human nature, as great as you are, as elevated as you are, the one who has dominion over the whole earth, can't make atonement for his own sins. There's no work that you could possibly do to atone. And then you have to be humble enough to put your hand on an animal, something that's dumb, (laughs) something that's dirty, something that's stinky, something that's lesser than you are, and realize, I can't make atonement. But it can. That's an act of humility, understanding that, that you're letting this lesser creature go before you. Right? That's meant to prompt humility, realizing that we have need of these things, that, that we are not up to the task. Instead, God, through his grace, has put this animal to go before us. I would add that, uh, that this does have implications for our age today, and that's here in Lent. We're called to be offering sacrifices. And just like this, you're going to find that they seem small. I mean, what can you possibly offer during Lent to God that's going to clear your sins? Well, nothing, really. And this is the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to recognize that there's really nothing that we can do. That's supposed to drive us to humility. So if you failed in your Lenten uh, fasting, in your Lenten penance, understand that's okay. That is meant to draw your heart towards humility. Those small sacrifices that we make, the little bit of fasting where we realize that without food we get very hangry, that's meant to make us realize how small we are, that we needed to put food in our lives to hold us from anger. (laughs) That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous in the same way that they had to put an animal on the altar to hold them back from destruction, right? It shows how weak and how frail we are, and it's an appeal to us to have humility in recognition of this fact. Verse 5, you are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the temple of meet, temple to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it to pieces. Lots of things to say here. Let's zero in on skinning the burnt offering. Recall what was the first offering in Scripture? Well, it's in Genesis. It was done by God in response to our sin in the garden. He made a burnt offering of something, and tradition says that it was the sheep, and then gives the skins to Adam and Eve for their covering, for their clothing. Well, Jewish tradition says that those skins became the priestly garments, passed down, all the way down to Noah. And there's, I'm told, I'm no Hebrew scholar, uh, clues in the text that when Noah goes before God after he comes out of the ark, that he's wearing the skins of Adam, um, these priestly garments that were given to him by God. So that's a really cool thing I want to point out. And there's also the the, the Christological um, aspect here that Isaiah says that by his stripes we were healed. So our Healing comes in the form, ultimately, of the burnt offering of Christ giving his skin to us. That happens at this fulfilled, at the scourging at the pillar. And it's meant specifically for our healing. But what about the burnt offering being cut into pieces? Well, I want to reflect on two other things, or actually people, who are cut into pieces in Scripture. I said I would reference a horrific story in Judges. This is the story of the Levite's concubine. I won't go into all the gory details, but basically, um, the Levite's in a, in a city square. He's then brought into somebody's 
home for protection because these people are super, super evil. And then they demand to come and have their way with him. He sends out his concubine and she dies as a result. And she's there at the threshold of the house in the morning. This Levite does what I don't know who would do and chops his concubine into pieces and sends pieces of her body to the different tribes of Israel to tell them about this horrific act that happened to her and, well, kind of, not really, to him. This means everybody gets mad. Everybody gets super mad at the tribe of Benjamin who did this because, well, tribe of Benjamin is always a Always an interesting, uh, always an interesting group. So they all get mad at the tribe of Benjamin and they go and they like kill most of the men of Benjamin. So there's only 600 um, men left in all the tribes of Benjamin. And then they say they can go and steal wives from these different groups. So horrendous story. What on earth is that telling us? Well, this is a Levite that had this happen. So we should reflect on this section of Leviticus, meaning pertaining to the Levites. (laughs) So in the burnt offering, it is cut into pieces and we get a peek behind the curtain with a story from judges about what this does. And what this does is it's an appeal to God to avenge to avenge because of the sins which have happened. So the burnt offering being cut to pieces and then being burned is sent out to God as an appeal for vengeance against evil. That's the first thing a burnt offering does. Second, uh, Samuel. Uh, so it's uh, Saul goes and defeats some, some bad guys. And uh, there's a king named, uh, what's his name? Agag or something. It's A-G-A-G's. I have no idea how you say that. Now he decides, yeah, I'm not going to kill him. You know, I know God said, to, you know, kill him and stuff, but I want to kind of keep him around. You know, he's here. Samuel comes in and finds old Agag and says, Saul, did you not listen to what God said? You're supposed to kill this. You know what? Sword. Somebody's got a sword. And then he hacks Agag to pieces in front of Saul. This tells us something else. Samuel goes on to say that this man made mothers childless through his violence. And therefore, he will will make Agag's mother childless by cutting him into pieces. So what does this act mean? Oh, and of course, Samuel's a priest, right? The high priest. Um, it shows us the force of the law against sin. It shows us the force of the law against the enemy king, ultimately Satan. It shows us justice, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, justice applied to evil. And we'll get into that phrase, by the way, in, I don't know, a couple episodes to go. So that's the two things which the cutting of the burnt offering into pieces does. It appeals to God for vengeance against evil, and it shows the force of the law that will be directed against sin and against the enemy king. Both of these also point to Christ. Christ is uh, takes the place of the worst sinner, and the force of the law comes against him. So he images what happens when the force of the law is directed against you. He's crucified. Now, this isn't penal substitution, and we'll have episodes one day about theories of atonement. But he also fulfills the other one, because he is abused by the crowds, though he is innocent, and his death makes an appeal to the Father to destroy our sins, and then, at Christ's sacrifice, he does. That's what the story about the... uh, was the uh, the vineyard owner, right? They send his prophets and they are abused and killed. And finally he says, they will respect my son. And the son is killed. And then the father says, I will wipe them all out. And that's what he does. So our sin and death and the power of the devil is wiped out because of the appeal that the son's body makes to the father. Verse seven, the sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Arrange wood? Why does it include this detail? Well, recall other times when people are told to arrange wood, to make a wooden structure. We have the Ark of Noah. 
That's the place where the people are being saved. We have the new ark, says Paul or Peter or somebody. The cross, the wood of the cross being put together is the place where we are saved. And what happens here on the altar? We arrange this wood to be once again the place of salvation, the place of being made right with God, the place of destruction of sin, just like the ark, just like the cross. And also notice how Leviticus calls us to include all of creation in our work of sacrifice. So we have the earth, and on top of the earth, we have the uncut stones placed on on this earth. And above it, we have the wood of the altar arranged. And on top of that, we have the animal that was raised for these many long years placed on top of that. Then the smoke of the sacrifice mingled with our prayers rises up to God. So what's it showing us? What's showing us the great hierarchy of beings? It begins just at the dirt. And it goes up, we, we have this arrangement of these stones into an altar. And then above just stones, we have these plants, right? There's this tree, the wood of the altar arranged. And then above this, the next thing in the order of the hierarchy of being are animals. And then we miss something. What are we missing? Missing man. And then we get all the way up to God. So what's this doing? It's showing us the hierarchy of being, the proper ordering of the good things that God has made. And it's also showing us that something is missing. Us. Now, they knew that that was missing because the initiation of this type of uh, sacrifice for their people is by their father Abraham, the father of faith, when he goes to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac is taken off the altar. But he pictures Christ. So that's one thing. It tells us of our need to be ourselves offered. It also shows us the great disconnect between us here on earth and God up in heaven. So it points to the need of God connecting to mankind, becoming a sacrifice, and joining that hierarchy all the way up back to its creator. This is also an antidote to idolatry in a remedy for the the sin of disordering the hierarchy of being. How? Well, note the amount of work that they're putting in to each level. Level one, the earth. Well, it, it was just inherited. Level two, all the stones set on the earth. Well, they're not cut stones um, in typical altars. I don't think in this one. Oh, man, I hope I'm not wrong about that. Anyways, <laughs> you get the point, right? We have stones. Then we have this placing. We're creating a wooden structure on top of the stones. That's more work. And then we have the animal, right? We had to raise that animal for at least a year. That's more work. So it shows that what we're directing our labor at, the higher order beings get more of it. And then we have the sacrifice itself going up to God and the whole people of Israel centered around this place of worship. An entire tribe, all the Levites, are meant to be worshiping full-time their creator. So what does all of our work go up to? Ultimately, it's all channeled up to God. Idolatry tells us to put our work into lower things, not higher things. To love wealth more than our family. To love our family more than God, right? All of this is idolatry. But look at what happens in the sacrifice. God is showing the ordering and how we apply our work. All of it is meant to ultimately bring us closer to our creator. Verse 8. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn it all on the altar. Washing the internal organs. Who thought that that was there? I don't know. Maybe some of you have read this before and you knew about this part. What does that mean? Well, the Jewish encyclopedia tells us that many scholars say that the purpose of this is to atone for the evil thoughts which we have. 
What is this meant to do? Well, the sacrifice is not just meant to have an exterior effect, but it's meant to wash and cleanse us inside, to cleanse us of evil thoughts themselves. Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount goes on to tell us that it's our inward intentions which can define the the act. So when we we intend to commit adultery, we've done it. We are guilty of it. So it's in Christ that we're to be interiorly washed. That's not all it's pointing to. Look at exactly what goes on here. What's washed with water? A, the internal organs. B, the legs. Christ fulfills the whole law. Christ, when the spear goes into his side, blood and water come out. Just like blood and water would pour out of these internal organs as they're being washed with water by the priest. So Christ is doing this for himself as priest and victim. He is washing his internal organs and being up on the cross. That means the water flows down his legs, fulfilling this section of Leviticus that the priest will wash the internal organs of the sacrifice and the priest will wash the legs of the sacrifice. That's what happened at the cross. Why? Because that water is meant for transforming our hearts, for atoning for our evil inward thoughts. The fathers point out that what comes from his side represent the two principal sacraments, the Eucharist and the water represents baptism. And what does baptism do? Well, the prophecy of uh, Micah says that God will sprinkle clean water in the hearts of stone and they will become hearts of flesh. So it's that water fulfilling this section of Leviticus that becomes the baptismal waters which actually transform our hearts in a way that the law and all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament never could. So it's a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So is God receiving this as food? Well, I mean, no, of course not. God doesn't need that. God doesn't have a, a body that needs food that we must send to him like pagans believed. What is God's food? What is Christ's food? Well, he tells us. Jesus says that my food is this, to do the will of my Father. So is this an offering of food? Yes. But what kind of food are we meant to ultimately offer? The type that Jesus is talking about, obedience. That's what the sacrifice is about. It's about obedience, ultimately. Verse 10. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. Why the north side, you may wonder? Well, the Israelites encamped in a certain, a certain manner. They had four directions, north, south, east, and west. And um, we have, oh, let's see if I can... Okay, so we have uh, Dan, the tribe of Dan... Um, it, so these are under the banner of Dan. We have three tribes, and they're represented by the eagle, and they are to the north. We have the tribe of Judah, represented by the lion, that is to the east. We have Ephraim, and Benjamin's with them. That'll become important in a minute. That's, rep that's represented by the ox, and that's to the west. And then we have Reuben to the south, and that's represented by a man. So, East is an important direction. Why? Because that represents from whence we look to the Messiah. Because the Messiah comes out of Judah, right? Bethlehem and Judah. So the entrance to the temple of meeting is facing east to allow for the coming Messiah. Now the west is understood where the sun sets. It's symbolic of the domain of darkness. So what do we put there? We put on that side a wash basin to the west. Why? Because we want to put a place of cleansing, of washing between the darkness and God's holy place. The south. 
And this one's tough. I'm not sure I have much for you. <laughs> um, Egypt's from the south, right? And that's the place of slavery. Um, and that's represented by, by the man, right? I would suggest that uh, it represents a place of just like common humanity, unregenerated by grace. And that that's why we have this slavery, this captivity, the uh, power of the pharaoh. But we also have something else. We have the queen of the south comes up for wisdom. And we do have examples of this too. That yes, in humanity, we have evil and a lot of it, depravity, and it's all over. But we also have an inbuilt yearning for our creator that can be expressed by the queen of the south coming up for wisdom or say the greeks loving wisdom and receiving to a great extent the wisdom that prepared them for the gospel later and and god affirms this when he has the man from macedonia uh, signal paul to come to them because they were prepared so i think the south might represent i mean it represents man maybe it means that now what about the north what about the north well, Isaiah says, uh, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. And Psalms also uses the north as this symbolic um, direction towards heaven, right? So I think that that, that makes sense. So we have Dan, the tribe of Dan, his banner is the eagle and he's to the north. The eagle flies high in the sky, right? It's up in the in the heavens. And north represents the heavens. So why is it that we offer that what did we do? We poured out the blood of this to the uh, to the north side? Well, oh, there we go. You were to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord? Well, because we're slaughtering it as close to heaven as we can get, right? Recall the thief next to Christ. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So the place of this burnt offering, the place of the sacrifice is as close to God as we can get, right? You are to cut it into pieces and the priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out of the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely. And then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This has clear parallels to the crucifixion. So when... When Mary and Joseph uh, redeemed uh, redeemed Christ at the temple, it's called redeemed, right? So they basically uh, give a sacrifice um, for the firstborn. They could have offered a sheep. They could have offered something like that, but they didn't. They did a uh, they, they did the young doves, right? The the, the pigeons. Um, they did that because they didn't have much money. This is then mirrored in the crucifixion. We have nothing to offer to God that's worth anything. <laughs> so we're in the position of the poor coming to the sacrifice. Christ is the offering which is meant for those who are poor, those who don't have. And he's mirrored here. Why? Because, one, um, the feathers are torn off. In the same way that he is stripped of his garments. Two, he's laid out on the wood. In the same way he's laid out on the cross. Next, it said it's not to be divided completely. And if you dig into what exactly that means, it means that you're not supposed to break any of its bones. Wringing its neck does not do that. That just it would break the part in between the, the bones of the neck, right? Um, the cartilage or whatever it is. And break the blood vessels and nerves. So we have 
not a bone is broken. Oh, and I was looking for this through the Talmud, but it's very hard to find things in that. I am told, take this with a grain of salt, that you actually nail the wings spread out to the piece of wood when you put it in. So it would be uh, uh, in the shape of Christ crucified. But you guys can look into that on your own. Leviticus chapter 2. And this is moving, so we were talking about the burnt offerings. This is moving into the section about the grain offerings. All righty. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priest. The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. If you bring a grain offering baked in an oven, it is it is, consi- it is to consist of the finest flour, either thick loaves made without yeast and with olive oil mixed in, or thin loaves made without yeast and brushed with olive oil. If your grain offering is prepared on a griddle, it is to be made of the finest flour mixed with oil and without yeast. Crumble it and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your grain offering is cooked in a pan, it is to be made of the finest flour and some olive oil. Bring the grain offering made of these things to the Lord. Present it to the priest who shall bring it to the altar. He shall take out the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar as a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. Okay, this happens only after the, um, the offering of uh, the, the burnt offering. So it is in connection with the burnt offering, and it is subsequent to the burnt offering. I will point out that it is specifically called a memorial offering. And that language is picked up in the, Old, in the New Testament talking about the memorial um, that we celebrate of Christ's sacrifice. So this is the memorial of the burnt offering, and the Eucharist is the memorial of Christ's offering on the cross. Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast. <clears throat> Orthodox, <clears throat> no leavened bread, <clears throat> for you are to not burn any yeast or honey in a food offering presented to the Lord. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of the grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Why can we not have honey or yeast mixed in? Well, um Basically, the, the honey and the, so the grain offering, to an extent, represents our work, right? And we hear that in the, we hear that in the mass, uh, fruit of the vine, work of human hands, it will become for us our spiritual gift. So it represents works that we bring up to God that are then made holy and sanctified by God. So whose work is honey? It's not my work, it's the bee. What about yeast? Well, it's the microorganism. So it's not fitting that we bring those things up because they don't relate to the work of our hands. Instead, uh, wine and wheat and oil, those things represent the work of our hands. So they're properly included in this grain offering. If you bring a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, offer crushed heads of new grain roasted in the fire. Put oil and incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall burn the memorial portion of the crushed grain and the oil together with all the incense as a food offering to the Lord. Recall the first 
fruits, uh, the first first fruits offering. Um, that's also in Genesis. A lot of these come from Genesis. Remember Cain and Abel? You know, Cain killed Abel, spoiler alert. What happened there? Well, Abel offers from his flocks and herds. And then Cain offers a first fruits of the things which he's grown. What, what does that mean? Well, Cain broke the order. What you have to do is you have to first offer a burnt offering. And then you can offer the grain offering. Why? Because the burnt offering is meant to clear you of your sins, to make you right with God, to put you back in that order that we talked about with God in the highest place. It's meant to do that, correct idolatry, put us in that stance of humility. That's the goal of the burnt offering. Then only after that can we bring the, the works of our hands and offer that to God to be elevated, to be sanctified, to be made holy, to become meritorious for us. That's, that's what we do, right? Our merits have no effect without the merits of Christ in his sacrifice. None. So what Cain does is he brings evil works because they are not redeemed by blood. And he offers those up. That's a wicked sacrifice. That is presumptuous. That is arrogant. That is prideful. And as we talked about in the earlier episode about defeating every sin the Benedictine way, there are certain uh, vices which are attached to certain actions. We talked about prayer, work, and study. And it's work that can often breed a type of resentment. And that's exactly what happened. He offers his works. He imagines that these will suffice to clear his sins, to um, be made holy, but they're not. And that results in a resentment that prompts the murder of Abel. This is a cautionary tale against uh, Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. The idea that we can work in order to earn salvation. The idea that our works are somehow able to clear us of our sin absent the shedding of blood. This stands in uh, stark contrast to those views. But let's zero in on the oil. This is one of the coolest things I've seen. So we learned why you can't include uh, leaven in these sacrifices, right? That's not the work of our hands. Um, and that's the whole point of this. Um, what about oil? Um, it, it, doesn't this whole bread offering, this memorial that comes after the burnt offering, which is offered up to God in cooperation with his people who bring our works to God, and then that's transformed into something holy? Isn't that picturing the Eucharist? If so, why don't we put oil on the Eucharist, dear listener? Any ideas? I will give you a brief moment to pause and reflect. And I'll hit the button to make the make that uh, intro music sound because I'm running out of time for this recording because I have to do it in certain... Anyways, you don't care. All right. Okay, so why don't we include oil in the Eucharistic sacrifice? Well... If you have read um, from the Talmud, um, Menkot uh, 2b, you will learn similarly with regard to a dry meal offering, i.e. the meal offering of a sinner which contains no oil, whose handful is removed for the sake of a meal offering that is mixed with oil, its mode of preparation proves that it is for the sake of a dry meal offering. So, that's an excerpt from this very boring section, but here's what we get. The meal offering of a sinner contains no oil. That's why. What happens? The priest then adds the oil because Leviticus, as we read, every possible way, whether it be baked in a pan, whether it be fried on a skittle, whatever it is, whatever way you are offering this bread, it has to have oil. It has to be brushed with oil. It has to be, um, hmm, anointed with oil. So, how does that work with the Eucharist? Exactly like this. We, as sinners, come to the altar and we offer the fruit of the vine, the work of human hands. We, as sinners, come to offer these works, the works that we have done. And then, it is through the transubstantiation which turns the bread into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ 
that it becomes anointed. Hmm. The anointed one. That's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means. It means the anointed one. The anointed with what? With oil. So, the way that this is fulfilled is only if the bread that we offer is transformed into the one who's been anointed by God himself. So, there you go. That is the reason we don't bring it up with oil. But it does fulfill this section of Leviticus, which moves us on to chapter 3. If your offering is a fellowship offering and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present them before the Lord, an animal without defect. You are to lay your hands on the head of the offering and slaughter it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship from from the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat of them near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, which you remove from with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If you offer an animal from a flock or as a fellowship offering to the Lord, you are to offer a male or female without defect. If you offer a lamb, you are to present it before the Lord. Lay your hands on its head and slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord. It's fat, the entire fat tail, close to the backbone, the internal organs, and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them, near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, which you remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. If your offering is a goat, you are to present it to the Lord. Lay your hands on the head, slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons will splash his blood against the altar. From what you offer, you are to present this food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that's connected with them, with both kidneys, with the fat on them, near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering, a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. And that concludes the third chapter. I sped through a lot of that without commentary because we talked about the uh, side of the altar. We, well, we didn't talk that much about it, but we'll get into that more later. We talked a little bit about that. We talked about the tent of meeting. We talked about the laying the hands on the head. We talked about, well, pretty much everything here except the central narrative that, that all three of these sections have given us. That the kidney, the liver, the fat, all this stuff needs to be presented. Why? It can't be eaten. Why? Why would this be? I won't do another pause button thing for you to think, but hey, um, you can pause if you really like to without the music. Here's what I, here's what I suggest. One, um, let's situate this in our burnt offering, grain offering, and now this is the fellowship offering. So we are made right with God. We memorialize this. We give of our works. We are then joined in in fellowship with neighbor through a meal. Note that the meat of the sacrifice, the muscle tissue is not burned up. That's because it's eaten and it's shared in community. So there's this eating of bread, right? That is part of what's being shared mostly with the priest, but that is being eaten and the meat is being eaten. So that reflects the Eucharistic reality that we, we see this bread that is part of the offering. And then this initiates the fellowship um, uh, of God's people in this meal of, um, of the uh, sacrificial victim itself. We have that. But we're told that we can't eat of the fat or any of the blood. And this is always a objection that we hear from our Protestant friends who say, look at that, we'll zero in on the blood. That one is repeated again and again and again. You cannot eat 
blood. You cannot drink blood at any time. So what's up with this Eucharistic claim that we actually eat of not only the whole body of Christ, which would include everything that's supposed to be removed, but also the, uh, we drink of the, his blood? Um, doesn't that violate the Levitical law? Hmm? Hmm? Here's what's going on. The reason why we can't drink the blood is because the blood is the life of the animal, we're told. And why can't we, 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 we drink of this? Well, it's because we're mingling our life with the life of something which is objectively lower, an animal. And what happens? Well, that draws us lower, that debases us. So Christ fulfills this when he becomes man, when he gives to us his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. What happens? What's the inverse? When we drink of his blood, we're not lowered, we're not debased, we're elevated. We're brought up into the divine life. This is something that was always prohibited, but prohibited in a way which actually points to its fulfillment by Christ issuing the New Testament in his blood. So we're actually called to be included in this new sacrifice that includes us not just in his life represented by the blood, but in the two other places. One is the fat. What is that? It's the energy of the sacrifice. So we're included in the grace and the energy in the life of Christ so that we can go out and do the works that Christ would have us do. So we're included in the fat. The fat also represents the plenty and the joy and that's included in the, the Eucharistic celebration where we're given the joy of Christ at the completion of his sacrifice, given in communion of fellowship, right? So we have the communion. <laughs> so it's the fellowship offering, um, communion with, with God and man. And then we have the organs. Let's talk about the organs. Are we included in the organs? Well, yes, Paul tells us that because of what Christ has done, he includes us into his body. That is the master image of the church, that we each become members. We each become organs. So whereas before we're precluded from this, we're separated from God in Christ's sacrifice, we're included into his body. Whereas before the organs were something which were separated out only for God. Well, now we become these things. We are joined into the very organs of Jesus Christ. So that's how all of this gets fulfilled. I'm going to leave it there and we're going to pick up chapter four next time. We're going to be learning about sin offerings. Uh, it actually begins with unintentional sins, which I think is a cool subject. So I will keep you guys in prayer. Keep me in prayer. And I hope that we can give you some more good episodes. I hope that you learned something from this and you guys are having an awesome Lent. Uh, as I always say every episode, if you ever want to reach out to me for anything at all, uh, just email me at thegordiannut101 at gmail.com. I've heard from a number of you guys lately and I always appreciate our conversations. Okay, God bless.